Tonight's Old and New Testament reading is from Genesis chapter 17, 9 through 14, and Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 39, and chapter 16, verses 14 through 15. Genesis chapter 17. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised man who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. In Acts chapter 2, And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone from the Lord our God, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And continuing, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, would you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful to be here. I was thinking about what one of our um, sisters prayed before the service in our prayer meeting that um, this is not at home or listening to a sermon online or even being in a small group. But when we're here, we're in your presence in a special way. So make yourself known as you have been the entire service. We long to know you more, each of us. In Christ's name, amen. Um. So, last week we started this series, which we're calling Theology in Life, and I wanted to say just a bit about that to begin with. Why are we doing that? Well, first, all of us are theologians here, because all of us have opinions about God, all of us have beliefs about God, even if your belief is that He doesn't exist. It's still a belief, and all our beliefs impact our life. That's just the way it goes. For instance, let's think about personal suffering. Now, if you're experiencing suffering and you believe God to be distant or far away, you're going to be more prone to be lonely through it and maybe even to be angry and bitter about it. But if you understand God to be a father who's active and near, you may experience comfort or guidance. What you believe about God, the kind of theologian you have, impacts your life. The Apostle Paul once wrote, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Why? Because they both impact one another. 
And the doctrine or the theology we're looking at tonight is the theology of sacraments, or more particularly, the sacrament of baptism, or more specifically, infant baptism. And typically, I think there are three responses to this. The first one is, ah, oh, isn't that adorable? Right? We love the little kids when they're baptized. The second response is, man, that's deplorable. Right? How could you put you know, this sign that's supposed to be a, a sign of faith on an infant who can't exercise faith? And the third one is, isn't this ignorable? You know, why do we have to talk about this? Is there really any relevance to this in my life? And let me just say this on the front end. The reason we baptize kids, as cute as they are, isn't so we can see their you know, uh, baptismal gown and uh, you know, celebrate with how cute they are. We do so because we see something in the Bible that leads us to. The second thing, I'm aware that there are those of us in our church that dis- disagree with this, and you probably will after I'm done preaching. Because there's been debates about this for hundreds of years, and I don't think it'll be solved until heaven. What is important is that we understand why people believe what they believe. That's important. But thirdly, about its relevance, infant baptism reveals a God for whom we all long. Let me illustrate it this way. When I hold an infant in my arms, I have two reactions. The first is, wow. You know, you're just holding this amazing creation of God. The other one is, yikes. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, was I like that once? You know, so helpless, just like sitting. What if someone would have just dropped me at that point? Couldn't feed myself, couldn't do anything. So vulnerable. It's a spiritual picture of you and I. Because this is what you have. People that are helpless. People that are needy. People that mess themselves with sin all the time. People that have trouble feeding themselves. And God reaches out to them before they even know it. He extends his promise and initiates, and all of us are hungry for that God. All of us are longing to know a God who is like that. And this promise takes the form of what we call a covenant. Mike preached about it last week. A covenant is simply a life-love bond. It's got privileges. It's got responsibilities. And we find in the early pages of the Bible, God establishes a universal covenant through the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, but they break covenant. They break faithfulness with him. Now, at that point, God could easily just judge. He could easily just pour curse because they failed their responsibilities. They broke the deal. But instead, he does this out of his gracious nature. He reestablishes the covenant. That's why it's called the covenant of grace. You hear it hinted of in the pages of Genesis early on, but also you see it then expressed in different ways. It's unfolded in the life of Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. And then we get to the prophets, and they talk about a new covenant that's going to come, and it's going to be grander and greater than the last one. More grace, more blessing. But these covenants always had signs, visible signs of invisible grace. I was thinking about a story I once heard from a, a worship leader and a friend. He was a teenager, and he helped himself to his dad's Jaguar uh, without asking. And you can probably finish the rest of the story. Uh, basically, he wrecks the thing. 
And, uh, you know, he, he, there's a lot to the story about, you know, his, what he had promised, the way he had failed his father, their relationship. So the, the way the story ends, though, is, you know, he's leaving one night and he's grabbing the keys for the other car. And his father says, John, here, take the keys to the Jag. And he said those keys represented, they were an object of grace to him, right? They were a sign to him that he was forgiven completely, that his dad trusted him. It was an outward sign of grace. And we need those signs. Why? Because we leak grace. Just like a tire can, that can have a slow leak in it. And you don't notice it until one day it's lying flat. We're like that. And so God means to give us these signs so that you and I can stay inflated with his grace that we can run and move ahead. And in the Old Testament, he gave two signs. The first was circumcision. And you heard about it read in the passage there. Uh, it was the cutting away of the foreskin, but it, it represented two things. One, it was marking out the people of Israel and where God was saying, you are set apart for my purposes. But also with the shedding of blood, there was a reminder that sin is costly. And sin will cost blood. It actually would point ahead to the sacrifices, but also ultimately to Jesus Christ. And the second sign of the covenant was Passover, where they ate the Passover dinner and it told the story of God's gracious deliverance from Egypt. When you move to the New Testament, something happens. Circumcision evolves into baptism. Okay? It evolves into baptism, and we'll talk about that. And the Passover is transformed by Jesus into what we call the Lord's Supper. But there's still signs of the covenant. Now there's signs of the new covenant of God. Just like a wedding ring is a sign of a covenant, this is what God has given us. Now, just as an aside, the Catholic faith adds five other sacraments. You know, they add um, penance, confirmation, marriage, holy orders for priests, the last rites. And while, you know, some of them you could make a case and say, well, they're beneficial for the Christian life, the reason Protestants don't regard those as sacraments because we understand sacraments to be something that Jesus directly instituted and commanded to do. There are some Protestants' faith that would add foot washing because when he washed his disciples' feet. But, you know, that is essentially the same principle of baptism and you don't find it repeated throughout the New Testament. So we land on, I think for good reasons, two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But why should infants receive this sign? I want to say for two reasons, with the time we have remaining. Because of the story of baptism and because of the significance of baptism. The story of baptism and the significance of it. Now, the story. Imagine seeing one of the Avengers films without having ever seen one of the individual films of the superheroes. You know, I mean, you've never seen an Iron Man, you've never seen the Black Panther, you've never seen any of those, but you see an adventure film. You know, you're going to miss a whole lot, right? You're going to miss the inside jokes. You're going to miss the backstory because you haven't had the whole story. Trying to understand infant baptism without first looking at the first part of the story, the Old Testament and the covenant of God, will leave you completely confused. And I will say this is part of the problem today. We have many, quote-unquote, New Testament Christians, people that sort of center themselves there. But you'll never really 
understand the point of infant baptism unless you see God's story as one long story. And in that, I would say there are three principles that undergird uh, infant baptism. I want to say three to you. The first one is what we find is the same pattern, just different generations. Same pattern, different generations. Okay, what do I mean by that? In the West, modern West, we as Christians think a lot about my personal faith. And even beyond Christians, it's, you know, it's my spirituality, it's my relationship with God. It's very individualistic. This is much different than the history and the context of the Bible. In the Bible, you see this. God never made a covenant with adults while not including the children. In the Bible, God never made a covenant with adults without also including children in that covenant. You heard it reflected in the passage, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. It goes beyond the kids, beyond their generations. And this is exactly what you see unfolded. God isn't just concerned with Noah, but he has great concern about Noah's sons. He's just not concerned with Abraham, but he's concerned about Abraham's descendants. He tells David, one from your dynasty will always be on the throne of God. The covenant always had in mind, it was not only the parents, but the children that were positioned to be heirs of the covenant. Of the ones that would reap the benefits of God's grace. This is the pattern you find. And it continues on into the New Testament. Peter's preaching after the Holy Spirit has been come upon the church. Jesus has died and raised. Peter's preaching. We heard it read. He says, repent and be baptized. And this promise, or we could say covenant, because they're one and the same. That's a loaded word promise. This promise or covenant is for you and your children. Because that was the pattern. That's what the people would have expected him to say. You come to the book of Ephesians and Paul says to children, just in general, doesn't say believing children, he says to children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why does he say that? Because they're in covenant with God. And then you heard the passage from Lydia, or rather book of Acts, where Lydia comes to faith and what happens, she's not only baptized, but her whole household. You find the same with the Philippian jailer. Why? Because it wasn't just adults. God never made a covenant with an adult without also including the children. And so it was a consistent pattern both in the old and the new. There's a passage, especially uh, in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, and it's a, a strange little verse, but it's consistent with what we're saying here, where Paul says, if there is one believing parent in a marriage, then the children are regarded holy by God. Now, at that point, we get a little alarmed to go, wait a second. You know, I thought people only became holy because they repented and believed and, you know, they were made righteous before God true. But, you know, that word means set apart as well. What Paul is saying here is because of the special relationship between the parent and God, the child is viewed in a special way. But this is a key point I want you to hear because I think this really accounts for a lot of objections. And here's it. Here's the point. Being in covenant with God is not the same thing as being saved by God. Okay? Being in covenant with God is not the same thing as being saved by God. 
And I think a lot of folks get confused on infant baptism because they think they're one and the same. But they're not in Scripture. In the Old Testament, they were all in covenant with God. But judgment fell on many because of their weakness and unbelief. And you find the prophet crying out, listen, circumcise your heart. Meaning physical circumcision ain't enough. That puts you in the covenant. But that didn't put you in God's heart. Just just because you have a ticket into the stadium doesn't mean you're on the team. Just because you're on the church rolls doesn't mean you're in the Lamb's book of life. Right? Just because you go to church doesn't mean that your heart is alive to God. Just like going to a country club doesn't mean you're a golfer. I could keep going on with these illustrations, by the way. <laughs> going to McDonald's doesn't make you a French fry. Going, you know, I could, I could go on and on. And you find the same in the New Testament. The religious leaders that orchestrated the death of the Son of God were all in covenant with God. But they were not saved. And so, with that distinction of mind, we understand that infant baptism doesn't wash away sinful nature. This would be a difference between Protestant and Catholics. We don't understand that we're washing away original sin, that anything magical is being done there. But rather, recognizing that our children are in special covenant with God. Because, to say it a third time, God never makes a covenant with an adult without making a covenant also with You may not believe it, but that's the pattern. Second principle. So you had same pattern, different generations, same promise, but different signs. If you work for a representative for Congress, you get the ID badge, right? You get the official badge. You're on the team, you get the jersey. If you're in the covenant, you get the sign. That's how it always worked with God. So you never find the case in the Old Testament where you have a Jewish father going, you know, I'm thinking we're going to wait to circumcise Johnny here. Let's see if he believes several years down the road. He could do that, but he would actually found himself cut off and maybe even killed. Because that's how serious, because guess what? The kid needed the sign to come to true faith. The sign didn't make them have faith, but it was a way to instruct them in the faith. That's why God wanted them to have it. Today, if I announced... Children are no longer going to be coming to this worship service. Now, some of your parents may go, oh, thanks. You know, I'm exhausted by my kids. No, but seriously, you know, you would say, what are you talking about? You can't do that. You can't keep the children away from God. Jesus would agree with you. The kingdom is theirs. God has the same way about the sign. And when you enter into the New Testament, the practice and the expectation was that kids would receive the sign of the covenant. That's what it was. Or why else would it be called a better covenant? We're told the New Testament is a better covenant. It wouldn't be a better covenant if you found out your kids weren't included in it. So your kids get the sign of the covenant. But the sign changes. Why? Because the Lord of the covenant showed up. The Lord of the covenant, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came. The second Adam, as the Bible refers to him. The true Israelite, the one that totally fulfilled the law and all righteousness. That Lord came, and so the sign changes. Circumcision right pointed to the need for the shedding of blood, but the Messiah came and shed his blood. And so we have a bloodless sign, water. The sign was just given to, applied to males in the Old Covenant, but the grace of God gets bigger and better, and so it's applied to both 
males and females in the new covenant. In the old covenant, you only got the sign if you became culturally Jewish or you were Jewish. In the New Testament, every tribe, tongue, and nation can receive the sign. It's a better covenant. Now, during the apostles, in Jesus' time, there was some overlap between circumcision and uh, baptism. But when you get to the book of Acts, chapter 15, what happens is you have the apostles coming together and saying, listen, circumcision is no longer necessary. Baptism is now the sign that we place upon people. It becomes the sign. Colossians chapter 2 says this. It makes this connection. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. There he's talking about spiritual stuff, not outward baptism, outward this, but a spiritual work of God. By putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Paul is saying what used to be signified in uh, circumcision is now, after Christ has come, signified in baptism. And it wasn't like baptism was brand new. There were always temple washings. We read about this in the fall when we studied the uh, tabernacle. Israelites were constantly being schooled by God, given the object lesson of you got to wash and cleanse yourself so you can be in the presence of God. So there were temple washings. You get to John the Baptist, and he does a special washing or baptism to remind people it ain't enough just to be physical lineage of Israel. You need to repent. The Messiah's on the way. And then finally, we have the baptism that of Christ. And that baptism, after Christ comes, its import becomes full and robust for us. How? Because it represents the washing that he has brought to all who trust in him. The cleansing that he promises, the new life that he gives. That we've been buried with him. You're, you came down in the water with him and you came up out of the water with him. And by the way, Presbyterians really don't care about the mode. It could be sprinkling, it could be immersion, that, that doesn't matter. You find both in the Bible. But the idea is through being in faith with Christ, you die and rise with him. You've been joined to him. Which brings second key point. First key point, remember, was being in covenant with God is not the same thing as being saved by God. Second key point is this. The signs of the covenant are about God's saving work before they're about man's work of faith. Okay? The signs of the covenant are about God's work more than they are about our faith. And you can see that this table isn't saying anything about my faith. It says a lot about what Jesus did, his body and blood. Same with baptism. So while there's a a sense of faith, and we even recognize this, you're dedicating your child, it ain't primarily about me standing up going, this is about my faith. Baptism isn't about that. Which is one of the reasons we don't need to get so freaked out about faith. But let me get to faith for the last point, and then I want to just hit a few things about significance. So remember we said, uh, same pattern, different generation, same promise, different sign. Lastly, same sign but different expressions of faith. Is faith necessary? I want you all to hear me. Yes! That Presbyterian doesn't care of faith. Yes, it's necessary. Without faith, how do I actually receive and apprehend the benefits of what God has done for me? It's the way that I get to receive all the gracious, wonderful things he's done for me. But in the Bible, you find that the faith of baptism functions in two different ways. For those that receive baptism after they believe, 
after they believe, it functions like the sign of circumcision did for Abraham. We're told in the Old Testament that circumcision was a seal of righteousness for Abraham. What does that mean? Well, we're told already he was righteous because he believed. So circumcision was a sign coming after his belief. First Peter would say this, baptism is the pledge of a good conscience. But when you switch it, for those that receive the sign before they believe, it becomes a sign of their need to exercise faith. So for an adult, it's indication of the presence of faith. For the, inf- for the infant, it's the indication that they need to exercise faith. It works from the inside out for the adult. It works for the outside in for the infant. Now, the question that comes up is, well, wait a second. What if the kid doesn't really come to faith? Then you put that sign upon them, and it's a sham. But you could say the same thing about an adult. An adult can be baptized, and then 15 years later say, forget this, God. I'm not interested in this, and walk away. It's not about faith primarily. It's, not a, sign, it's a sign of a promise, not a sign of salvation. In fact, only the Lord in time will tell Who is a true believer? It's true. You can say that me or anybody here. Only the Lord in time will tell who has really persevered in belief. Now, in the church, just for what it's worth, because I get this question often from sincere parents, well, when does my kid have to own that faith? For us, we would say it's when they're admitted to take the Lord's table, take communion, because at that point they stand up with everybody else and they profess their faith. They have to own their faith publicly. Now, I want to hit one other little objection for those of you that are like theologues. Because, you know, I I don't want to get away where you might be saying, yeah, but he skated over this one. Okay. (laughs) In the book of Jeremiah, there's a statement where God says, in the new covenant, all will know me. So there's a lot of folks say, see, that's why only believing people should get the sign. Because he says, all will know me. But, you know, context is everything. You go just a little bit back in that chapter, and God says also this. That day, no one will need taught anymore by anybody. Now, obviously, Jesus was coming. He was going to teach. The apostles were going to teach. You're being taught right now. That day is not, that day is pointing to heaven. That day is pointing to the new covenant. That's when everyone will know God fully. Lastly, the witness of church history is instructive because for the first two centuries, you find the practice of infant baptism, and you would expect if it were eradicated for some reason, there would have been a pretty big splash. Now, let me say this. You all have been so patient as we've gone through the theology thing because we're talking about theology and life, and I want to say if you're visiting here, uh, well, I'm not going to make any apologies. That's what we're doing. Uh, But I want to get to the life, the significance life, a couple things. What does infant baptism signify and how can it encourage us? First of all, it reminds us of God's loving faithfulness toward those who we love. It's not a small thing. You know, you love someone's kid, you love the parent. You love someone's niece or nephew, you love the aunt or the uncle. Right? God, loving faithfulness toward the people that we love. Now, listen... The kid has to grow up and take the engagement ring, and it's got to become a wedding ring. 
They got to believe. They got to exercise faith. But God has made a true promise to them. A true promise. Second, it signifies how God has bound or united himself to us. You know what the big theological piece behind all the sacraments is? Union with Christ. When you come to this table, you have a meal with God. In fact, we symbolically feed on Christ. We take him into us. Baptism the same way. It means to be united to God. And that means, why is that so important? Because everything that Jesus died and lived for, everything that he won, every blessing, every privilege he has, every, I mean, how blessed is the Son of God? How blessed is the Messiah? How blessed is the King of Kings? How blessed is he? How pleased is God with him? Well, if you're united to him, all that applies to you. Baptism is trying to remind you of that, of your union with Christ. And it's what I love about it, the church didn't invent it. It came out of the mouth of Jesus. And it's not dependent on the faith of the parent or even the minister. Like I promise you, I'm not going to come up to you someday, listen, last year when I baptized your kid, I was having sort of an off day. I, you know, I, just, I was struggling in my faith. I had a fight with my wife. I think we need to do the whole thing again. It's not about... You know, the power of it is not in that. It's in God's sign applied correctly in the Trinity with water. And it's outside of you. God has given something outside of you to encourage you. Thirdly, it's passing along the privilege. Now, let's imagine you find out that your niece or nephew or your son or daughter has been bequeathed a wealthy estate. And the only thing you have to do as the guardian is to hold, uh, hold the trust. I can't imagine many parents would go, you know something, I think I'm going to wait until my child grows up and they can make the decision whether they want the great estate. If you love them, you're going to go, no, no, I'm going to hold the trust. God has given children of believers a great estate, a wealth of things. And we hold it in trust. And so whether you're doing children's church or whether you are, you know, again, sitting with your grandson or daughter or a friend's friend who you love, kids you love so much, you say to them, someone has left you a really, really big present. God. And it's not just spiritual stuff. The meek will inherit the earth. He will be giving you physical blessings throughout your life. Fourthly, it gives us perspective on raising kids. While these kids are not sinless, we don't view them as outsiders. We don't view them as unbelievers. And of course, unbelievers are viewed as with respect and dignity, but you get my point. They're not seen, it really, you know, sometimes in, in some part of the church, for some of you, you go, I don't understand what you're saying, others will resonate. But, you know, in some traditions, there's this nervousness that, man, my kid, I hope he lives long enough so he can pray a prayer. And the parent's always nervous to try to get their kid to to say a prayer to Jesus, a saving prayer to Jesus. And that's because ultimately they don't really see them as in the covenant. They don't see them as insiders. When they sing Jesus, you know, when the kid wants to sing Jesus loves me, "Eh, I don't know if you can sing that. (laughs) We don't really know, right? I mean, you're outside of the covenant right now, so I think it might just, Jesus likes me, is probably a safer bet. No. 
the kid can sing Jesus Loves Me. Because God has enfolded them into his covenant. Being in the covenant is not the same thing as being saved. But he has reached out to them in love. And he's told us to raise them in the promise. This helps us not to freak out as they go through their ups and downs, as they deal with doubts and skeptical questions. You know, you're in it for the long story because you know God's in it for the long story. Lastly, there is ongoing significance for adults who have been baptized. The moment that you start contemplating your baptism, power comes into your spiritual life. The moment you begin to think about power. Martin Luther, when he felt sorely tempted and he struggled doubting that God loved him or cared for him, he would take a piece of chalk and go over to his work table and write, I have been baptized. And he would get victorious from it. Because when you understand that God has put this sign upon me and he's the one that did it and what this sign signifies, you feel power in strength. You know, uh, which leads to my, my final applications here. If you've been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit in water, it's time to blow the dust off your baptism. Now, you know, we've all seen this film where you got the old cop, you know, that maybe something happened and he retired, and then he, he comes and he opens the drawer and he pulls out the badge, and, right? You need to blow the dust off your baptism and receive the authority of it. You know, you need to grab it again. You need to put on the superhero suit again. Because what happens is we never, so when you're sitting here watching these cute kids get baptized, it's okay to do that, but you got to be thinking about your baptism or you're just a spectator. If you're, a believe, if you're someone that believes in Christ, you're a professing believer here, but you have not been baptized, I want to invite you to get baptized. Why miss out? There's only two sacraments, right? You're missing out on the first one. And God wants to strengthen your faith. It's a means of grace. And Jesus commanded that you get baptized. I'll add that. And really, you should get... I'm going to go one more further. One more further. And you really should be baptized before you come here. Well, we can talk about it. You know, I'm not saying don't come, but I'd love to talk with you about it because... It's the initiating sign of the covenant. Thirdly, if you're not a Christian here, um, I want to urge you about this God who not only comes to you in your weakness, but really does give you signs. Okay? We often say, God, send me a sign. This is a God who not only gives the signs of things we believe, the sign of His Son who came into the world. He is eager to bring you into his family. So repent, like all Christians have to do, believe and be baptized. And lastly, whether you're, um, you know, a God, all of us are godparents to Christian kids, whether you're babysitting a kid, let's remind our kids about the gift of their baptism. Let's do it regularly. Okay, I think that's enough. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your covenant of grace. Thank you for uh, the signs you've given us, the one we're going to take now, and for the sign of baptism in Christ's name. Amen.